I think our most important job is to create memories and traditions. Uh, if that kid, when he becomes a teenager and when he becomes a young adult, has the memory, and, and really think about it, a dark ride is one of the few elements besides the theming that you do in a park where you can really be different than the other guy. Everybody's got a coaster, everybody's got a merry-go-round, everybody's got the standard attractions. Dark ride builds character for theme park. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, man, I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. You're welcome. So I have a question for you. Well, I have a question for you. How are you? <laughs> I am fantastic. I was waiting for you to ask, but now I really... <laughs> I know, I can see I can see it just building up. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Um, I do have a question for you and it has to do with dark rides. Okay. Okay. Um, what's your favorite dark ride? Moody Blues, Nights in White Satin, the trip from <laughs> the park formerly known as Hard Rock Park in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. What made it so great? What made it so great? It was such an enjoyable, immersive experience in that it was so different from any other ride and in particular, any other dark ride. Uh, many dark rides today and what makes them so great are some of the surprises and gags that we're gonna talk about later on in this interview or certain other effects or something that will maybe jump out and scare you or make you laugh. And this was something that was just pure tranquil, but not in a way that's like boring, you can fall asleep, in a way that you're like looking around at multiple sensory visual elements. Interesting, interesting. Well, I'm sad that I never got to uh, experience that, but your description of it, you know, does give me, uh, give me some inspiration for maybe a, maybe a new dark ride that might, might open up, you never know. Totally. Uh, What's yours, by the way? Well, so I have one that's really sort of a, a nostalgic favorite, which is the Mine of the Lost Souls at Canby mm. Lake Park. And part of that reason it's, it's such a favorite is because I was there when it was transformed by our guest today, John Wood from Sally, Dark Rides. Um, the Mine of the Lost Souls tells, tells the story of Billy and Bobby Hollander who got lost in the back of the mine. And um, the thing was, that was so cool was seeing how, I mean, it was, it was a haunted mine before that. And we still called it the Haunted Mine, even though the name changed to the Mind of the Lost Souls. Um, but just to see how Sally kind of raised the bar in terms of how this previous attraction could be reborn into something new with new animatronics and new story and, you know, all kinds of new gags and effects. Um, it was just really cool to, to see that. And um, one of the things that I think was the, the best part was honestly not riding it, but we had hallways where we could go watch, you know, to make sure that people weren't 
you know, doing what they shouldn't be doing as far as guests. But I just used to love standing in the different doorways where nobody could see me, but I could see all the effects working and I could see the, the impact that it had on the guests. Um, that was a really, really cool experience. Oh, I'm sure that sounds amazing. Yeah. And the common thread that links these two together is that these are both Sally dark rides. And I'm so excited to talk everything Sally today with our guest, John Wood. Yeah, CEO of, of Sally Dark Rides, as you mentioned. Um, and John has been around for a long time, started off with two other Johns, um, you know, trying to sell his animatronics. And uh, I learned a little bit about the history of the, the company, and I'm, I'm excited to share that with everybody. But just the longevity and the evolution of what he's done in the industry and how dark rides have really evolved over the years. It's just, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. Totally. I feel like we could nerd out about our favorite dark rides for a little while, but we know that our audience wants to hear this amazing interview with John Wood. So I'd say, let's get straight to it. Here we go. John Wood from Sally. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing, John? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So excited to talk to you today. Can you give us just a little bit of a background of, of your time in the industry and kind of your, your time with Sally as well? Well, uh, in the late 1970s, in 1977, in a garage in Jacksonville, three guys named John decided to launch a company named Sally at the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions in 98 and 78 in Atlanta. Our first show, we had we had taken our animatronic figures to the retail display industry and had dabbled at the museum industry. Didn't exactly find the response that we were looking for, but we went to the theme park industry with our product. We found people who knew what we were doing and why. And so we found a home. I haven't missed one since. So uh, this will be our 44th IAPA coming up. Wow. Wow. Um, can you tell us where the name Sally came from? I can. It's not that exciting, but it was the name of the first character that was built by my partner when he was in dental school in North Carolina. It was creating a teaching tool that he was also building his own airplane in his garage. And so he was somebody of note in the neighborhood. His next door neighbor would come over regularly, who I was working with at the time at a real estate investment trust out of college. And they dreamed about starting another business, uh, building and selling what they call robots. And uh, they needed somebody young and dumb, and I showed up. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about going from building animatronics to then moving into the amusement space and when, when these actually become rides surrounding Yeah, abso absolutely. Good question too, uh, Josh. That it was an evolutionary process. All of our business has been. We started building these individual characters and putting them into a different location, walkthroughs, storefronts, et cetera. Uh, and then Chuck E. Cheese came around. And Chuck E. Cheese was a a uh, paradigm shift for anyone that was building animatronics in the industry. And we started making animated musical shows in a big way. 
Bubba Bear and the Badland Band, Daniel and the Dixie Diggers, Billy Joe and the Bluegrass Bears, Ursula and the Oompapas, Mr. Beaks and the Tropical Tweeters, and on and on and on. Uh, it was a lot of fun. But when Chuck E. Cheese filed for reorganization because they overexpanded, that market dried up. We had already had some success selling it into theme parks. We already knew that we enjoyed the theme park people and the business of theme park. And that really our entry was that we could build magical art of animatronics at a fraction of the price of what Disney and Universal were using and could therefore create attractions that may be at a price range that would be affordable and comparable in quality and popularity for the regional theme park. Uh, focus became, even though we worked, worked on some big projects, and this was be 1985. We worked, our biggest project was at the Baltimore Power Plant with Six Flags and Landmark Entertainment led by Gary Goddard, Tony Christopher. It was a 73 character show with five rotating turntables and seven animated drops, 73 animatronic figures on the attraction. It was quite the production. And it introduced us to a lot of the players that later on became key to the themed entertainment industry, including Beck Beck, Monty Mundy, Gary Goddard, uh, uh, a variety of others too, that were involved in those embryonic uh, projects of major consequence that were outside of the Universal and Disney realm. Was somebody else trying to create something of magnitude in the themed entertainment world? And while it was a bit of a false start, uh, for the for that part of the industry, it certainly was that embryonic for everyone else to kind of get into the industry, get around related parties, and then the TEA was formed shortly thereafter, and more of the subcontractors and people that were involved in art and fun entertainment uh, came out of the woodworks, so to say, uh, and so. It was a natural evolution for me to try and convince. Let me take a step back. I visited theme parks. I walked around those parks talking to general managers. I can remember right now my walk through Kings Island with Lou Hooper was probably one of the most rewarding exchanges that I had. He was nervous for some reason. I was a young kid. I didn't know the business like he did, but he didn't really like dealing with salespeople, I guess. But he did give me the courtesy of walking around. And I saw places where I could put a parent or I could put a greeter and I could put a band. But then he said something to me that really struck a nerve. He said, you know, every year our surveys indicate that our people want a haunted house. Every year we put in a roller coaster. And I, and why, and the question was why? And they, they weren't comfortable with that. It was easier for them to buy a piece of equipment than it was to buy a show and a ride combined. And a few that had tried to do it didn't measure up to anything that was close to Disney or Universal. It wasn't easy for them to market it. It wasn't easy for them to achieve the capacity that they required. And it really wasn't uh, as repeatable as some of the other thrill attractions because every time it was a different screen. I went about solving those problems and devised a haunted attraction 
with a great IP and uh, enough gags and whistles and bells and elements to it and capacity that was comparable to any roller coaster out there. And it was licensed by Ghostbusters. And we took it to the marketplace long before we should have because we didn't know what exactly what to do with it. We had sold it, but it did transform us and our direction and our company. And we became focused on utilizing our skills as animators to create whole shows with others that were of like mind and capabilities. We set our sights to design and build cost-effective attractions comparable to what you could find at the major locations, but for the region. John, can you walk us through um, as best you can? I know we'll, we've got a limited amount of time, but just sort of the creative process of putting together a dark ride, because it's very different than building a roller coaster or a flat ride. There's a story, there's animatronics, there's, you know, the vehicle. And so just from a, maybe from a creative standpoint, how do you, how do you approach that? It starts with a creative brief. And, you know, we've had customers that have come to us that we want to do this, uh, and then we will come back we'll get parameters. What, what is the, is there an intellectual property involved? Where is it in your park? Approximately how much budget are you going to devote to it? What kind of capacity are we going to need, et cetera. And from that, then we will come back usually with three to seven creative briefs, not often much more than a paragraph, but but one that has enough of the seeds of the idea down there. And we want them to select one or more to work with. We'll develop the script and then we start filling out the voids, the space, and, and how, how it's going to come together from a story standpoint. And eventually we get to a point, we've got a layout, we will do an element chart where you will go through and list everything that you've designed into this ride and put some time and money aside on the side of it so that you can figure out how much this thing's going to cost. There was a point in time when uh, we realized that we had to create concepts to sell concepts. And it was not an inexpensive process to create a new dark ride and know how much it's going to sell for. Uh, and it was after though we had built maybe a dozen rides and had three or four generic designs that we could say, look, these are styles. It's going to cost you about this. If you Want an exact number? Pick from one that we've already created. We tell you exactly if it's a custom one. But in this style, it's probably going to be 30% more if it's a custom one that has a lot of animatronics. We'll figure it out. It's a process that you have to go through. And and yet one that, and it does take time. Uh, usually, you know, 90 days or so of intense development before you have a number and a time frame and numbers from your subs to be able to say, we can do this for X dollars. Uh, and then obviously you've got to get to the right. Usually we have 12 to 14 months uh, from the contract date. So you can add three or four months to the front of that in the selling and developing process. And you've got a couple of years in the making. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned is uh, whether you're working with intellectual property or not for any particular project. And I'm curious as far as challenges with working with various IPs or the opportunities that that brings compared to creating a new story or you know, new characters altogether uh, based on the specifics of the project. Well, 
like people, there's different personalities with every IP and every IP holder. And most of them do this every day and they have to work with different approvals and processes and notes and he is getting into their process uh, and making sure that you have enough meetings to get enough done in the time frame to get the project. So we worked with some of the best IPs in the world. I mean, Lincoln DC Comics doesn't get much better than that. Uh, Sesame Street, pretty darn good. And the list goes on. Uh, and we enjoy working with IPs. It does kind of set up your framework. Uh, but you, your project manager works pretty hard to be sure that they get the approvals done on the process and get it back to production. It's, a, uh, it's more involved. There's a three-leg, third leg to the stool that you have to deal with. But it generally greatly increases the marketability for the, for the client. Uh, you can total recognition of what kind of attraction is going in when they attach an IP. Now, in the case for Hershey Park, that's years ago when we did Cup Fusion, uh, they spent money and time with Louis Alfieri and, and his Raven Sun design group to create an IP, to develop individual characters that they could go back and merchandise and promote and Reese's uh, commercials and, and kind of create new stories about. So that's a whole nother experience dealing with that. Again, it's an IP. It's just not as famous. Yeah. You know, John, a, a bit ago, you talked a little bit about rewritability and, um, you know, making making an attraction so that you could want to re redo it and, and talk to people about it and things like that. So what are some of the things that you put into, into practice to create an attraction that people want to see and do multiple times and, and have a great rewritability re factor? Obviously, this was my biggest challenge, I thought, when I was in the creative side. Um, I don't like going to movies twice. And if Disney was a regional park and I went to it once a month, I wouldn't like riding Small World once a month either, you know. And the reality is those visual experiences relied on either large spaces with beautiful sets and scenery and some special effects or uh, even larger transports, et cetera. So, um, uh, we had to deal with smaller footprints. We had to deal with uh, more real situations. Uh, so repeatability, the best solution I ever came up with was to combine the age-old dark ride with the shooting yacht and turn it into an interactive, creative experience. Making it different if you just jumped off and ran back on and went again with your dad to try to beat him this time because he beat you last time. And that works. We've seen it uh, time and time again. And when I first stumbled on that concept, I said, Eureka, I found the solution to repeatability. And that, that's what we've used. The other thing you've got to always use, though, Matt, Disney knows this. Anyone has studied dark rides, tag for what makes it work. You know, there is a stream of consciousness that goes in there. It gets a little even foggier when you start adding targets when you get you know you're not paying that close attention to the show but if there weren't surprises around the other corners if there wasn't something falling on you or shooting at you or firing at you or smoking you i mean that's what makes a great dark ride gags and uh weaving those gags throughout giving people surprises around every corner 
novelty is important. Uh, you know, I think that mixing it up, I put projection characters into my dark rides just because if they were all animatronic, they wouldn't be that entertaining. Can you talk or, or walk us through kind of the looking at it from the guest's perspective when developing a ride and particularly looking at that rewritability factor and that interactive component? I does that help guide the you know the placement of certain targets and animatronics or the projections or things like that? How are you able to to look at it from the guest's perspective when it might still be in concept form and it's still kind of abstract and little blue sky? Well. I have some very young uh, creative gamers for, for one thing on my creative team uh, and my son included that know much more about gaming than I will ever know, uh, but understand how to employ it. The thing that has made the biggest difference in recent years has been the use of media interactivity and turning it into more of a video game uh, with an Unreal 4 game engine being actually rendering in real time. So when you knock somebody down with your blaster, he's gonna re-render himself, get back up in a few seconds based on the script and keep on going. Uh, before we had to make them go away. You know, when we taught them if we wanted to have some results, you had to poof them into smoke or something. And that wasn't as much fun. But if you ever ride Cup Fusion, you'll see how many layers of gaming we put into the video. And there are literally targets everywhere. And there is group play. There is team play. There is our Easter eggs, all new elements to the game that the next time people will ride it, talk about it, see it on social media. They've also tied it into an RFID program. So it's tied in throughout the park and see their score uh, compared to the other people who've ridden it that day. So all of that keeps that repeatability high. Uh, John, a minute ago, you talked about the gags and the surprises, and this is something that I find fascinating, whether it's a dark ride or a haunted house and, you know, how we, we can have our attention one place, right, you know, by design, and then the, the designer will, you know, have something, you know, happen over here that turns our attention and things like that. I'm curious, are there some tried and true uh, gags that you continue to use that will always work because of human nature, you know, regardless of technology that uh, kind of show up in, in different dark rides uh, over the years? Yeah, usually when something gets me, I'll put him in my next dark ride. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the gags, I have a long list of gags that we've used and developed and try to ref refer to during design because I really do believe and a lot of them are simple. Is swing out, you know, I told Gary's story when we were walking around, and, and a lot of times owners and operators think about this stuff too much. The dark ride usually is not a real deep story. It's a three-minute experience. It's not even a complete cart Saturday morning cartoon. It's part of a Saturday morning cartoon, or it's the Cliff Notes version of a Saturday morning cartoon experience. Not a full-length movie unless it's something as popular as Harry Potter. And because of that, a lot of times parks will overthink it. And I would tell Gary, I said, there's nothing scarier than a guy hanging around the corner that you're walking by and he jumps out and says, boo. And don't forget it. It isn't high technology here. It's as simple as boo. <laughs> he threw it back in my face many a time. But that's the reality of, you know, uh, so 
when you break that plane uh, that's supposed to be your space, everybody knows their space. And it's very difficult with safety reach envelope to appear in your space. You can do it with smoke. You can do it with air. You can do it with heat of a fire or cold from a gun. You can do it with smells. But other physical gags need to be penetrating your space. Falling fast enough to appear that if it did fall, it's going to hit you. And then stopping at the right location to where it's safe. A tree. And now if it happens too early or happens too late, it don't work. Right at the right time, it's a super gag. And getting all that, you know, I also rode with Tom Ivan on our Justice League at Texas. And we had all the components in there and we rode around. And it wasn't fine-tuned. And we didn't have it really programmed right. We both got off of that ride, same ride, and gave it a C. It wasn't good yet. And we went back and we programmed and we made it to where it's an A plus because it was fine-tuned. And that's critical. Uh, being able, it's not just a mixture that you add cold water and stir. You've got to be a chef and you've got to know when to add the water, whether it's cold or hot or cream or wine. Hmm. When you talk about, you know, the, the list of gags that you have or kind of coming up with that tried and true process that can be replicated across multiple rides, across multiple parks. Can you talk a little bit about, the innovation process of determining, uh, you know, maybe maybe what's going to be that next new gag or maybe that next new element in the ride experience that keeps things kind of going and moving forward. So you've always got something kind of new and fresh to present to prospective clients. Well, it, it is an evolutionary process and sometimes technology plays a role in it. Uh, but I'm often reminded that it's not technology driven. Uh, and while the customer is always asking, what's the newest technology? I'm often telling what's the newest success as opposed to the newest technology. In the case of, of our Sesame Street ride, we were able to achieve an incredible ride lengthwise in a smaller space than Justice League. It was a community experience with an overly popular uh, IP in a language sensitive where we had to do five or six different languages for the people that are going through it, but a great experience. And it's combining the animatronics and blending them with the video to where they were truly interactive and working together. It gave them a great pre-show game. I mean, our pre-show experience there is really just about as good as the ride, if you ask me, if, and go there and enjoy it because it, it, what it does is adds 15 minutes of entertainment to the overall experience as opposed to just waiting in line. But in addition to that, we throw at them some curved screens, all the way immersive screens to where they experience something they have never experienced before anywhere. And those are the kind of gags we want to do next time again. Yeah. Can you talk more about the importance of a quality pre-show um, I'll share a, a quick experience with you. The first time I ever rode Spider-Man down at Islands of Adventure, I went through the express queue because it happened to be open and I didn't get it. Like all these people were talking about how great Spider-Man was. I'm like, yeah, it was okay. But then when I went through the, the actual queue and I understood the story, that really enhanced the actual ride. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you go through your thought process for creating a pre-show in addition to the ride? Yeah, sure, Matt. You know, the, the key is understanding the importance of it. 
And because we have such a short period of time to deliver the show and the story and safely, uh, really setting it up is important. You need to, you need, they typically will check their brain at the gate. They won't bring it with them. And, and we need to help them understand where they are, why they're there and what their mission is, if they're gonna have fun. And, and so it's up to us to be sure to set the situation up well. Sometimes we're, we get the ability to, sometimes it's not that easy. It's an important component of a successful dark. Yeah. So are there any particular visual or kind of auditory cues that are maybe kind of on that list, similar to the list of gags that they might see in the ride that are part of kind of that formula for success that are in the queue or in the pre-show that helps kind of turn the guest's brain back on. So now they're knowing, like you said, you know what your mission is, you know what to do, or now they're thinking a little bit more uh, while still making sure that they have a good time. Well, there isn't a simple list on that one, Josh. Uh, it's no, but there is an important, and that's to be fun. Uh, you know, fun is what our realize when when Family Kingdom in Myrtle Beach asked me to design a dark ride in a 4,000 square foot Mexican restaurant called Paco's. It was at a different level as the rest of this park. I said, I don't know that we can do that. I've never done that one that small. His budget was one that I'd never done one that small for either. And and yet the process was Let's think back about way Disney's did it. You know, in Disney's Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was one of my favorite rides, not an animatronic character in the mix, but it was fun. And it was full of gags. And it was full of color and art and physical experiences without it being truly physical. So it's a, it's a good example for us. So, and all of us love it. It was one of our favorites because it was a traditional uh, truly a traditional dark ride that had been wrapped around a, a loose Disney story. Um, so when we did the Great Pistolero Roundup, now called Quick Draw, I had to come to the conclusion that I'm no longer just in the animatronics business. I'm no longer doing dark rides just to put my animatronics in. I've gotten in the fun business now. When, you know, while we have to build reliable uh dependable mechanical elements and they have to be easy to service and understand and the whole thing has to be a machine that works well together it needs to be fun first and foremost and i would imagine that there's a you know like you said that they, they kind of leave their brain at the door so they're kind of in this mode of wanting to have fun and and not wanting that illusion to be broken so if you happen to be going through a ride and one of the animatronics is just like this it's not moving that's got to be, you know, something that just brings people out of the experience. So you mentioned the, that they have got to be reliable. What are you doing to make sure that they are reliable? Like, is there a different build process or, you know, more maintenance or just kind of how do you approach the reliability of all those effects? I think from the design to begin with, Matt, we, we have a design criteria to build things with a minimum intended life of 10 years. So the components that we use are industrial rated valves and cylinders rated at a million strokes a piece and replaceable if they go out and bad. And the way we build our product is something that is what I call not exotic. If I had to have components that you had to get from Korea or New Zealand or someplace to do this, 
it would be a real misstep for fixed class, you know, but if the mechanical guy that deals with other mechanical elements can look inside my character and not be afraid to work on it because, hey, this makes sense. Clear plastic bodies, color-coded air tubing, valves that light when activated, clear instructions, simple animation. Again, what we decided to do was to be the best at creating digital pneumatic animation and not chasing the hydraulics and the compliance out there only because A, nobody else could afford it. B, they didn't operate very well without service. And most importantly, we needed to have a product that everybody said, hey, that stuff worked like that. B, it's gonna keep on ticking. So, uh, or Timex would be a better example. <laughs> so that's from the get-go, we have construction standards that we work toward and then we're very active in trying to stay in touch with our customers, especially if we see something on social media where the guns are down at a location or a character's down. We're, we're on it, and we don't always get the response we wanted, but they know we're interested in keeping our product. I mean, this year, cut. This next year, Challenge of Tutankhamen at Wallaby, Belgium, the award-winning attraction that we installed 20 years ago, will be celebrating its 20th anniversary. We're talking with them, encouraging them that this is a big deal. 20 years of continuous, you know, blockbuster attraction status for you. Let's get back in and give it a good polish. And hopefully they will. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because then you can, you know, you can celebrate uh, not just the, you know, how, how long the ride has been there, but how that has really benefited the park and become kind of a, a beloved attraction for, you know, for the guests that turning that kind of to the, to then the business approach of that continual return on their investment, you know, for, uh, you know, for doing that, you know, 20 years ago. So it uh, definitely makes sense from that standpoint. So, well, you know, oh, sorry. if I may, if I may add in there, yeah. uh, I think our most important job is to create memories and traditions. Uh, if that kid, when he becomes a teenager and when he becomes a young adult has the memory and, and really think about it. A dark ride is one of the few elements besides the theming that you do in a park where you can really be different than the other guy. Everybody's got a coaster. Everybody's got a merry-go-round. Everybody's got the standard attractions. Dark ride builds character for theme park. Hmm. Santa's Village in New Hampshire is not going to be the same. Now the Bah, the bah Humbug Adventure is, is part of his the fabric of his character. Same thing with the 30-year-old Mine of Lost Souls, a canopy, one of a kind, but that's our first dark ride that I designed, and it was a retrofit, and Carl one day needs to upgrade it, but uh, it's still still working like a champ. I'm so glad you brought that one up because I was working at Canopy uh, when that went in. And uh, I, I vividly remember, you know, going through it for the first time and seeing some of the, the tricks and the gags and um, just what an incredible transformation it was. Um, I still remember Billy and Bobby Hollander were the characters. And um, yeah, there, there was a Grim Reaper that had his, his scythe. Is that how you say it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Struck yeah. the fiber optics and yep. unloaded the big explosion and then the flood. And and uh, they were all gags that I had seen mostly in other locations that I said, this is something we need to do. And yeah. keeping my eyes open and trying to figure out how to do things was the best way to get around. That's too funny. Yeah. Um, 
So John, one of the other things that we want to make sure we cover is that you're very actively involved with TEA and with IAPA and have been uh, you know, for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about why that type of involvement has been so important for you to be able to stay very connected with these associations? Yeah, I can. It's, it's an easy answer, too. I, I encourage anybody and everyone out there to get involved in their association. But um, there's a big social aspect of our industry. And, you know, I'm a social guy. And uh, so I enjoyed being a participant on committees, on the board, where I could contribute. I did my work and my homework. And hopefully I was, a you know, a good representative of my constituency in the case of the manufacturers and suppliers at IAPA, in the case of other theme providers in TEA. Um, but no question. I mean, my first break, if you ask me, was back in uh, 85 or 86 when I got invited on a people-to-people -people exchange program with, to China with the creme to the creme of the, I mean, Buzz Price, John Graff, Terry Van Gorder, Carl Hughes, uh, Orlando Ferrante, names that I would have never even met and much less traveled with for three weeks, got to know and got to love. And you can't do that just on the trade ship. So it's an extension of your social and truly your ability to spread your news uh, to others. And fortunately people, most people like me, so I didn't get kicked off. I didn't have a bad name and I definitely believe it greatly benefited who we are, where we are and where we're going. John, would you say that that the associations like an IAPA are really dependent on what you put into it? Like you get out of it what you put into it, because I know there's some people that are kind of like, what, what have you done for me lately? But at the same time, you know, what have you done for them? I mean, it's an association where you're supposed to be contributing. So I'm curious about your thoughts on, on you know, giving back, I guess. Well, I, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. Every time I gave, it was selfish. I, you know, well, I'm, I'm, there's payback with that. And if you do a good job and meet good people, you're going to get an opportunity. I came away from my first meetings at IAPA with the realization that these people were like me, that they were entrepreneurial, that they were family, that they were independent in often cases, and that they were anxious to be successful. And that if I was good at what I did, they would buy from me because they would trust me yeah. and I would do a good job. So um, it's that kind of association. Uh, you know, they, uh, our reputation is stellar, not because of the way we've worked, but the way we've worked with others. I think you make a good point there that is sometimes a common misconception of I'm going to go to a trade show, I'm going to set up a booth, and because I'm there getting exposure, I'm going to get a whole bunch of business from it, even if it's my first time going or just joining the association. And obviously that's, you know, couldn't be farther from the truth. It's about the, the relationship and the, and the trust that you build over time. And the, the associations are kind of the, the vehicle to get there, but you, know, you need to, you know, of course, do that work to do it. And you'd be hard pressed, although I'm not a member of a lot of other associations. I don't think you'd be hard pressed though to find as much of a fraternity feeling that you find at IAPL, such a big organization. And the same thing with TEA, they're good at mixers. They're good at having fun and they're good at having fun together. Yeah. 
I, I wonder if just part of that is the people that are involved and attracted to that kind of uh, environment and, and our industry, right? When you go to IAPA, you're surrounded by 30,000 people that are like you. So, you know, if, if you're not having fun, if you're not enjoying it and getting something out of it, it's kind of on you, you know what That's I mean? That's a fact, man. It, the day before IAPA starts, it's Christmas Eve. And if you don't have that feeling in your gut, you're not there. Exactly. I just got goosebumps from you saying that. Yeah. <laughs> it was sad to take a year off, but really looking forward to uh, to getting back there this year. So yeah, I have goosebumps for that too. Uh, one of the other things too is uh, in addition to your involvement with these associations is also your involvement with the Leesburg Applause Award uh, that recognizes excellence, inspiration in the theme park industry. And wondering if you can share what are what are kind of the, the building blocks of the recipients of those awards that go into that um, that are then recognized with such a high honor of excellence. Yeah, no, it's a tradition now over the last 30 years and uh, started by Lisa Berg, uh, Boo Kentorp, and then picked up by Matsvidin and now Andreas Anderson. And the organization sponsors the award. A uh, very famous sculptor had created the initial award. And as you know, some of the initial recipients were Disney and Knott's Berry and, and Universal. Uh, a couple of things, though, Boo and Boo did that on himself early on, but then he realized he needed two things. One is he really needed to have judges. And he started getting feedback from some of his decisions. Freeland early on is one that you look back on and say, really? I'm not real sure that that is deserving. But at the time, he was, you know, judge and jury. And, uh, and it didn't matter what everybody else thought. But he wanted to get some more prestige to it. So he started adding uh, a board of governors. The board of governors were made up of recognized suppliers and uh, providers in the industry. Because at that time, they had the greatest knowledge of what's happening out there. I mean, an operator knows what's happening in his park, but often not what's happening in Europe or Asia or other places that we needed to judge. And there's a nomination process. Uh, both open to the public and open to the board. And quite often it's the board of, of trustees in this case, and may further a nomination. Used to be we'd have as many as six and that was extremely difficult. And we've narrowed it down to where we only have three finalists every two years. And it's a challenge because we haven't given any repeat award to anyone, um, but you know, the criteria is high. And the criteria is outlined, is, and it includes foresight, development, uh, marketing, and uh, courtesy, and cleanliness, and uh, quality, uh, all the way around from their business acumen to their quality of the park experience itself. Uh, I don't know how I've been on it so long, uh, but I, I've been one of those that got on I wasn't part of the original board of trustees, but I was invited on and uh, loved, the, loved being able to go, loved being able to take my family occasionally to some of these great parks and let them experience them as well and help be my judge. Uh, but there are a series of criteria. And then we work again with the three finalists to go visit and interview and experience each of the parks. Uh, and then we vote. And... Uh, it's not always easy. 
but we've got a good board and very conscientious workers on it. And uh, it's a real honor to be a part of. And now I've been on it for 20 years. Wow. Wow. Who are some of the, the folks out there that when you go out and you see, wow, they're doing a great job. Um, what are some of the things that you're seeing out there that people are doing that maybe are surprises to you or, you know, just kind of running their business maybe in a slightly different way? Uh, you know, Disney and Universal, just, they just keep on hitting it out of the park. They have the most creative minds and the best budgets to work with. <laughs> Uh, but they really continue to set the high watermark. I feel like we're a junior high school. We go to their college regularly and learn. Uh, and what we bring back is good enough for our 98% of the population, but the 2% that, uh, that we're not happy for, then that's okay too. Uh, the bottom line is that there's no one that beats them. No one is even interested in beating The regional park doesn't think that way. I mean, they just don't think in this direction. Mm -hmm. We have to be the thinker. And we have to bring that new technology or new technique. And, and a good example, if it wasn't for Toy Story Mania, I don't know that we've had, we'd have as much interactive video media now in my rides. But after that, and then when Legoland at their LDC did one, I went over to England and wrote it. Because at first I had denied, we had been doing the Legoland Discovery Center dark rides in America. And then they built one in, in England and, they decided they would make it interactive and media and I hadn't started our media push yet. So I had to beg out, but I went over and wrote it. And I came back and said, guess what guys, this is the way it's going to go. And the majority of our future will have media in it. Let's get to that. We did. Hmm. One of the other things that I wanted to cover too, um, and I would, I would regret if I did not ask you about this because it is my favorite, not only Sally ride, but dark ride in general. And that is Moody Blues, Nights in White Satin, the trip at Hard Rock Park. And it, it, people still talk about it today. I mean, you know, there were, there were rides, there were, you know, there was a B&M, there was a premiere there. And whenever I talk about Hard Rock Park, they always say, I wish I could have ridden Nights in White Satin. Uh, curious, kind of, you know, going back to the, the development process, that that ride was interesting because of how unusual it was in that it was a family attraction that had some undertones of, I guess, a psychedelic nature. And no question about it. Our, <laughs> our, marching, our marching orders were to create a ride that was a trip without the acid. Right. <laughs> so curious as far as what that process was like of balancing that line uh, that turned out to be a, a phenomenal product. Well, first and foremost, there was no acid. So it was all then just beautiful uh, special effects. It's a special effects ride. No animatronics in it whatsoever. And the I had originally thought years ago of trying to create a complement to the MTV craze and create music boxes that were dark. And they were choreographed to the music. It turns out when you get deeper in there, you don't, it doesn't really work. But this was my first opportunity. When John Benkowski called and said, you know, we want to do this. He had two or three different bands. We look, listened to Led Zeppelin. We listened to the Eagles. We listened to others. But Moody Blues were the ones that they settled with. And Nights in White Satin was one of my favorite songs in college in the 70s. So um, we started trying to figure out how to visualize the words of that song. What would be, the, and there were other things that I wanted to do too. 
I still love the speed tunnel and if man had wings at Eastern Airlines. It was one of my favorite attractions and it was not picked up by others. So I put in a speed tunnel and uh, and Knights in White Satin was still incredibly effective. Uh, other things were laser tunnels and fiber optics and smoke ring effect and projections on, on satin and special effects, uh, illusions. Uh, but it was most endearing, I think, because of the great synchronization with the soundtrack and the effects that accompanied the ride. These were two six-passenger vehicles that were mechanically linked. So we're dispatching 12 people. They thought they're going to have bazillions of people there all the time. And to try to synchronize the effects to where they were equal to the person in the back seat of the back car to the first seat of the first car was a real challenge. But we did so with two smoke rings and a couple other gags. Uh, it was a great little ride, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, can, can you describe, I, I was going to say my, my, the part of the ride that sticks out to me most was the speed tunnel. Uh, can you describe what exactly that is for those who might not be familiar? Well, it is a egg shaped, slightly egg shaped, uh, tunnel with, you know, an entry and an exit and usually one or two projectors that project on the walls above you and around you. And you're traveling at one speed, but the projections are going the opposite speed, the opposite way. So everything is a speed up, you know, whether it's a slow thing that you're going through very slowly or whether these people are skiing by you, as they used to do if man had wings. Uh, you know, you'd be competing with people on the snowboard and stuff like that as you're going through there and they'd have wind blowing on you. It just always got me going. It was a great ride and it was free. It wasn't an e-ticket. So that was why I wrote it so much in my early days. But uh, I love the effect. I keep on looking for other ways to use it. And again, it's on my list of gags that work. Do you also have a list of gags that don't work? Mm. The ones that, that you, you don't want to use again? No, that's all in here. <laughs> that didn't get written down. It doesn't, just doesn't even make it back to paper. Yeah. I am curious, though, on a kind of a bigger question. Are, are there, have there been times, I'm guessing, over the many years that you've, you've been in business where there's things that have shown up on the, on the blueprint, on the, in the drawing, but then you just, it just didn't work in real life? Always, you know, you, you take a you take a dark ride like, all right, let's take Scary Swamp Adventure, Scooby Doo at St. Louis, and it was a boat ride. It was the only boat ride that we did. Uh, it was bigger than the other Scooby Doo's, uh, and we wanted to do more three dimensional animation. We had a big gorilla and a big croc in there that were supposed to be large mechanical pieces that would again get your attention, and then they just never worked the way they should. And they were big pieces. That was a disappointment for me. I don't know if it was really our mechanical or if it was their uh, their maintenance, but be that as it may, that was the only kind of real disappointment. Usually it's timing related. Uh, you got to go back and change that trigger. That's not going when it should. And if it does, it'll work great. If it doesn't, like it doesn't now, it's not working worth a hoot. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll adjust it. That's part of that fine tuning. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, as we start to wind this down, uh, curious uh, if you could give advice to yourself back in the 70s, working with a, in a garage with John and John, what would you tell yourself uh, back then in those very early days? 
uh, I, I've been tempted a number of times to say run because <laughs> it's not an easy, you know, I made a decision in college that I wanted to have my own business. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that the people around me that were very successful had run their own business instead of working for the other fellow. And so I was looking for an opportunity to be an entrepreneur and to be in charge of myself and my future. What that means is that you have no time cards. You have no eight to five. You have no weekends. You have a total obligation. I think I would tell myself back then to spend more time with my family. Hmm. Uh, but no regrets. No regrets. And still happily married, two great kids. I don't know if they needed me more or less, but <laughs> my wife certainly was wanted when I was traveling so much. That's the one thing that I uh, was really happy that we survived yeah. and that uh, she still would. That's awesome. That's awesome. So where do you find yourself now when you um, are looking for some some downtime or you're, you're trying to relax? I mean, are you still going to theme parks? Are you going to see attractions? What is it that, that John Wood does when he's not building attractions? Yeah, I, uh, my wind down time is on my rooftop uh, at the beach. I go home, I climb those stairs, I get up on the roof, I turn on the music, I get a cold beer, and I am in Nirvana. Now, what I do? I get my iPhone and I start working again. But I really love the work. I mean, what else are you going to do? I'll read about industry news. I'll think about it. I come up with some of my best ideas. Mm -hmm. Always coming down with notes. And uh, and so that's what I do to wind down. I also do a little whitewater canoeing. I like to get up the mountains. We go to the Keys every year. Here in Jacksonville, I'm a seven-hour drive to the mountains, a seven-hour drive to the Keys. And we go every year at least once. Uh but I live at the beach, got sand in my shoes. That's what it Sounds takes great. for me to relax. That's awesome. Yeah. John, uh, this has been uh, such a phenomenal interview and really appreciate the uh, time that you took for, uh, to have this conversation with us. If people want to say hi to you on the socials or learn more about Sally Dark Rides, where would you send them? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't pay attention to much of the other stuff besides Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, but I'm on Facebook. You can see my new grandson on there if you go to my Facebook page. And uh, Reese Wood Weaver, cute little kid. How old is he? He's five months now. All right. Cool. Yeah. Ovid baby. Yeah. Ovid baby. Josh has one of those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's almost one. eight months. So, yeah. Just to, Well, just you to know, then absolutely. What a wonderful experience, huh? Yeah. 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 Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, and to you as well for, uh, for Reese, uh, any, any final words for, uh, for our audience out there listening and watching dark ride it, <laughs> ride those dark rides, stay our fans, keep on pushing. You know, it really was a process of convincing the, the, the regional park had grown corporate. They didn't have a lot of creative show elements in their management any longer. We had to convince them that dark rides were not going to break down. They were not going to be a place where everybody just goes in and smokes pot and, you know, and does the things that spits on everything. We proved the point that if you build quality, people will respect quality. 
If you got a clean bathroom, they're not going to dirty it up. The same thing is there with a the dark ride. If you give people something to do when they're riding, especially shooting at targets, they're not going to lift the lap bar and get off, scare the people behind them, and do all the things that they didn't want to see happen in their parks. Uh, and this, you know, we had to convince them that A, dark rides would still be popular over a length of time, over a period of repeatability. And if anything proved that is our little ghost blasters at Mall of America, a total regional park, open day year round, every day, now in its 16th year, maybe 17th year, no changes to it whatsoever over the time. Only one maintenance call that I know of. And they went from 400,000 people riding it the first year. There are over 500,000 people now years later. So it's just, it's a tradition and it's repeatable. Uh, so we were able to finally convince them of that, that A, they were popular. They were something that were in demand and that it could market it, promote it, and uh, it would continue to operate for them consistently. And uh, that was a big, that was a big bunch of water to carry originally, but now I think we've gotten there. And more and more, it's not this the roller coaster that's getting the call. It's also, you know, you know like it's last year or the last couple of years, Birchie Park had a record season on the backs of our new dark. Port Aventura sold record season passes, 50% increase on the backs of shifting their demographics, some to a more family oriented. Oriented. Even Scandinavian parks and attractions, when they added BAMS at the Colmore, it was much more successful for them than the big wooden coaster. Demographics changed. Families are more important. And, uh, and if you can create an attraction that families can do together and want to do it again, I think you got a winner. Absolutely. Well, this conversation has been a winner, and I'd like to re-watch re, re this conversation. So luckily we can because it was recorded. But John, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate all of your insight. And for everybody out there watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.